Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. Lucinda Sage Midgordon has been a story lover since she and her family watched TV and movies together when she was a child. Her father taught her how to find the deeper layers of a story. This love prompted her to pursue a double major in religious studies and theater and speech, an MA in theater arts, and finally a master's in education so she could share her love of stories with her students. Now retired, Lucinda writes her weekly blog, Sage Woman Chronicles, is working on her second novel, manages her online course, Saving the World One Story at a Time, and produces the bi-weekly podcast, Story Power. Lucinda talks with me about the overlap between religion and theater, how story can broaden our understanding of others and help us learn emotional intelligence, how she came to create her online course, and even shares some classic books and movies that are still relevant today. Here's my conversation with Lucinda Sage Midgordon. Lucinda, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. So I start everybody out with the same question, which is, were you a creative kid or did you discover your creative side later on? Oh, no, I was creative. Uh, Partly I was creative because when I was really young, uh, we'd have family movie night because my dad has dyslexia and my mom worked. And so reading to us at night was difficult for my dad and my mom was exhausted. So we would have family movie nights so that we could talk about the characters and what they were doing. And, and so, yes, I I remember when I was really young, I had a Barbie doll. This is probably a Barbie doll shoe, but I remember being outside playing and looking at the ground and there was a shoe print. And I was convinced it was a fairy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course, yes. It was probably my Barbie doll's shoe print. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So I was always creative, yeah. And it sounds like you may have grown up in a household where that was really encouraged, too. If you had a family movie night and were discussing what was going on in the movies. Yeah. Yes. Because my dad was, uh, I mean, he didn't get to finish high school because of his dyslexia, but he taught himself how to read and he was really smart about human nature. So it was always, we were always discussing what the characters were doing and why. And we got to ask questions about that. And he would ask us questions. And then we, at the end, you know, usually we were talking about, well, what did you get out of the movie? What do you think it was about? you know, or the television show, because mom and dad really liked Star Trek. And when they weren't at church <laughs> stuff, they'd they'd watch Star Trek with us too. So that was the original, the original Star Trek. So um, yeah, we, so we'd talk about those kinds of things. And I learned, you know, I didn't realize this until I was quite a bit older, that uh, talking about why people do what they do, uh, in the at least characters then when i was out at school or something and some kid was doing something weird i'd go now why is that kid doing that Mm. Hmm, maybe maybe it's because of this or that or you know instead of well i mean sometimes i would get angry and upset but you know as i grew up a little bit more i i was more contemplative about why people were doing weird things. And and that was all because of the discussions that I had. And when I got into high school, it was just mostly my dad and me. Sometimes I'd come home from a game. Um, I was on the pep club. And so I'd come home from a game and I'd turn on the TV and watch the late movie and dad would watch it with me. And that was always fun. We'd talk about it all weekend. And yeah. Well, and that's an interesting point that you make about how reflecting on stories does change how you interact with other people. I mean, they always say that about reading fiction. You know, the mm-hmm. people who read more fiction are more likely to, and this is where, you know, I don't have all these studies at the top of my head, but, you know, the, the people are more likely to be more empathetic and mm-hmm. react to life and other people more differently than people who don't. And I think that that makes sense because you're exposed to different stories, different ideas, you know, all sorts of things that you mm-hmm. might not otherwise encounter in your regular life 
even though they're fiction. Right. Even different cultures. Mm -hmm. Because I remember I was not a big reader until I got into high school. And I mean, I read what I had to read for school, but fiction wasn't, uh, I wasn't hooked on fiction. I was hooked on movies. And, uh, but mom would, wanted me to read and she wanted my brother, they wanted my brother to read. So they got him, they got a subscription to Sports Illustrated for him because he was really into sports. And mom would feed me these romance novels. Now, this was the age of Harlequin and Barbara Cartland, and all of them were the same. And so after about 10 of those, I went, these are all the same. I'm bored. So, of course, what did I do? I picked up James Michener. Because, <laughs> um, you know, historical fiction. And part of it was because you know, it was the age of the high budget mini series. And I remember Centennial was one of the first ones I saw. And it was, that's based on a James Michener book. So I think that was one of the first ones I read four, three or four of them. Um, let's see, I read Caravans and I read The Source. And then uh, when I got to Hawaii, because I liked that movie, but I got to Hawaii and there were pages and pages and pages of descriptions of the flowers. And, you know, and I said, uh, I carried this. <laughs> so I put it down. Um, it is a really thick book. But then I started reading other historical fiction things. Uh, Taylor Caldwell was one. And, and occasionally I would pick up a romance, but mostly not. And um, then when I got into senior year of high school and we read A Tale of Two Cities, I was hooked on British literature. So I read a lot of that. Well, we also read Jane Eyre. We didn't read any Jane Austen. I don't know why, because I didn't read her until I was like maybe six years or eight years ago or ten, wait. 1995, 1996, that's when I started reading her, was that long ago. But uh, yeah, so uh, I loved, I love British literature. So of, the, of that era, you know, and I just read a whole bunch. I read fantasy. I read uh, the only, about the only thing that I'm not really interested in is anything to do with the mob or, uh, you know, stuff like that. I'm not into that kind of stuff, but yeah. Well, you certainly got away from Barbara Cartland novels. <laughs> yes. Yeah, James Michener. What was I thinking? Although they were fascinating. They were fascinating. Yeah. I learned, I went to different parts of the world right sure. away. <laughs> so, yeah. Sure. So how did you end up landing on theater? Well, it was just a complete outgrowth of, you know, talking about stories. Mm -hmm. Now, the, my first degree actually was religious studies, but I was taking it because it was the 70s. Women were not ministers, mostly. Um, the Episcopal Church was starting to ordain women priests but in the church that I belong to, no women were ministers. And so, but I was just interested in the stories, you know, Old Testament, New Testament. Those were some of my favorite classes. Uh, world history, well, world history of religions was another one of my favorite classes because I was learning about all the stories of the, you know, people and how they developed their religions and all the things that happened to them. And um, uh, of course, I was the only woman in that program. And so there were, you know, young men that told, told me that I needed to change my major because I was a woman and not, women were never going to be ministers, which actually about five years after I graduated, the church decided to ordain women ministers. Ah. I'm laughing about that now. Um, but yeah, that was stress. That was kind of a stressful time, but I did finish that degree. And then uh, while I was doing that degree, 
my husband and I decided to get married. He's younger than I am. So I wanted to stick around until we could get married. And I had started taking, during that stressful time, I had started taking theater classes and loved it. So I ended up with a double major, um, theater and speech and religious studies and theater and speech. And then when we moved to Portland, Barry and I moved to Portland, um, I worked two years at a trade school. It was a travel trade school. So they were training people to work at the, you know, the airport front desk or the uh, hotel front desk or whatever. And, um, oh my goodness, it was horrible. I hated working there. And I had a little bit of a nervous breakdown finally after two years and decided I was going to go get my master's in theater. And so that was, oh, that was one of the best decisions I ever made. And um, because when we moved to Arizona, then I had a master's degree and all I had to do was, you know, get enough credits to teach which it ended up that I was, I got a master's in teaching too, but um, yeah. So I, then I got to, I got the best of both worlds because when I was doing community theater or uh, I was in plays at the, at the university, Portland state, um, I, it was evening rehearsals and Barry and I barely saw each other. And then, but then when we moved here, it was like, oh, well, you know, I can have rehearsals in the afternoon when I'm directing a play and be home at night with Barry. So it was the best of both worlds. Yeah. Wow. That's how I got into it. <laughs> it was therapeutic. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> but I, I am kind of struck by the fact that there, there is a decent chunk of overlap between religion and theater really when when you think about mm-hmm. it you know there's mm-hmm. there, there's a, a lot of theatricality a lot of drama to religion oh, yeah. oh yes yes and you know I, I, I recently i watched this series called hollywood masters and there were more than one director or producer or actor who talked and I've heard lots of actors and producers and directors talk this way, that it's a sacred thing. Mm. Um, you know, telling a story is a sacred thing. And they don't always couch say those exact words, but it's, you know, it's there's something spiritual about it. Being creative is there's something spiritual about it. So, you know, for me, the spiritual side and the creative side would just go together. Yeah, I and, No, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, you know, I've had a lot of spiritual experiences in my life thanks to my dad, um who's very who was very spiritual to himself. And, you know, you kind of have to do that exact same thing when you're being an actor or when you're in the zone for painting or my husband's a potter and a graphic artist and he gets in this zone and it's you're you're tapping into something that isn't knowable or seeable in the what we think of as solid mm-hmm. <laughs> although things are not solid really there <laughs> but yeah no i i agree with you i think there is definitely something that that we kind of connect with and pull into the physical world from from the ether for want of a better way of of putting it mm-hmm. and i'm sure that mm-hmm. there are better ways of putting that but but yeah i mean there are there are the moments when you're in a creative process where it really feels like work you know where it really feels mm-hmm. like it's not coming and it's not happening and you and you almost feel like you're forcing it Mm-hmm. And then there are the moments when it feels like everything is lined up the right way. And it's all connected and the, and the juice is just flowing and you don't necessarily know where it's coming from and you really don't care as long as it keeps going. Right. Exactly. And it's a totally different experience from mm-hmm. the former. And you're not necessarily going to land in that good juicy flow in place every day. 
But when you do, boy, it is magic. Yeah. Well, well, and I find that when I'm not, when I don't, it's because I have too much noise in my head usually. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's always something going on in my head. I'm always have something going on in the back of my head. I'm thinking about some story that I read or that I'm reading and projecting what's going to happen next or, Oh, putting things together. Like this is sort of a silly uh, example, but I was creating an online course for you to me. And I was, and it's all about story and, and how we can use stories like I did for as for therapeutic reasons and to help ourselves become emotionally intelligent. That's kind of the whole chain of the lectures that I have. And I was just walking through the living room and I went, oh my gosh, I could use the MCU as an example because <laughs> Iron Man is completely not emotionally intelligent on one spectrum and Captain America is completely <laughs> emotionally intelligent on the other spectrum. And everybody, all the other characters are someplace along there. Now, of course, Tony Stark does eventually become throughout all the 20, however many movies um, become emotionally intelligent, but it takes him a while, you know, to get there. His life is a complete mess emotionally at the beginning. And, um, yeah. And, you know, if we're going to get along with each other, we have to be emotionally intelligent. Yeah. We have to manage our emotions. We have to be able to say, um, I'm feeling really upset right now. I need my space. Could you, you know, could you give me some time so that I can, you know, get my head together and, <laughs> you know, and sometimes I would have to do that when I was teaching you know, 10 kids bombarding me at the moment. And I would go, wait, okay, you go and you go and then you go, you know, and they, and they, I think they appreciated that instead of me yelling at them and saying, shut up, you know, or <laughs> whatever shut up is in Spanish. Cause most of them spoke Spanish as their first language, <laughs> but yeah. So, yeah. well, and you know, it's interesting because it was what, like, 25-ish years ago that emotional intelligence suddenly became a topic when that book came out. And it was such a mm -hmm. revolutionary idea, you know, everybody talked about, mm -hmm. you know, your IQ, but nobody had ever thought that there was any other kind of intelligence. It was just, mm -hmm. you know, what showed up on your SAT score, essentially. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think I, I don't remember because I, I wasn't super tuned in. I mean, I, I, I remember the book coming out and I remember thinking, oh, what an interesting idea. I don't know how it was received more widely, but I have to imagine that there were a lot of people who said, you got to be kidding me. And also clearly a lot of people who said, yeah, you know, or it wouldn't, right. have, it wouldn't have stuck around. But, you know, it seems to me that we're better on, on that now than we used to be, but we've still got a long way to go. You know, mm -hmm. we're still kind of figuring yeah. out what what this emotional intelligence thing is. And, and a lot of us have grown up in situations where, you know, we were not in environments where people knew what that was, you know, because right. it was before 1990, whatever, when the book came out, nobody talked mm -hmm. about it. Nobody, you know, mm -hmm. people didn't necessarily have those skills naturally. They didn't, you know, weren't lucky enough to grow up in a family where folks had them and passed them down. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of us out here who are still trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just very fortunate because my father was highly emotionally intelligent. He was very empathetic. And very perceptive, perceptive about people because he was a minister in the church. We had lay ministers in our church. And I remember he, especially this one year, he was the director of the youth camp that I was going to. And he went around and asked people to help out with youth camp that had never been asked to do that before. And some of them were like, what? You think I can do that? Well, they were terrific. 
because my dad could see these qualities in them that they didn't know they had or had never thought about before. And yeah, so he had this ability to kind of see beneath the surface. And I can't tell you how many times people have said, oh my gosh, you were so lucky. And I didn't realize that I was lucky because, you know, just that's just the way it was at home. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think we, you know, sometimes we just let fear rule us and then we go all cattywampus with our emotions. And um, Herbert, what's his name that wrote Dune is right. You know, fear is the mind killer. And, you know, my dad was able to to teach us how to, okay, when you're afraid, this is kind of what you do. And, oh, okay. Whew, yeah. It's okay to feel it, but you don't have to stay there. It's okay to feel angry or resentful or whatever, but you don't have to stay there forever. Yes. Yeah, um, that is a massive, massive gift he gave you. Oh, yes. Really. Because one of my students at when this is when I was teaching at the border town, uh, you know, this kid was just like, and, and, and I would, you know, keep, you know, you need to get back to your work. And one of the kids looked at me and said, Mrs. Sage, you are one of the most patient people I've ever met. I can't believe you're still, you know, trying to work with this person because it was annoying everybody, you know. But eventually it worked out, you know, that the kid kind of evened out. But I mean, it was like, really? I'm, you think I'm patient? Because inside I'm going, ah, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But you can't show that. You can't show that on the outside, you know. So, yeah, I was just very, very, very fortunate. Absolutely. And I'll bet yeah. you that your students taught you a lot too, because they always do. Oh, I love, oh, I love learning from my students. Yeah. Especially, well, you know, when I was teaching at the border town and they, you know, mo- most of them spoke Spanish for their first language and a lot of Mexican kids, you know, they're not used to speaking up. So I'd ask them questions, you know, well, what do you think about this? What it took them a while before they got it that I really did want to hear their opinions. And when they'd say something that I had never thought about before, I'd go, Oh wow, never thought about that before. That's really great. And I think that kind of encouraged them to to actually have discussions instead of just sit there. You know. How kids are supposed to just sit there. Yeah, that's so boring for everybody. I know. Well, fortunately, Arizona has had this, uh, right before I left, had this mandate that all teachers were supposed to learn these, um, these teaching techniques used for students with um, disabilities and also uh, English as a second language, they call it ELL in Arizona, um, English language learners. And so getting them up, up out of the seat, their seats and doing these activities and in, in groups where the really proficient English speakers can help the not so proficient English speakers, you know, and uh, I was so grateful for that because it was a hundred at the at high school, it was a hundred minute classes. Wow. I had three classes a day, 100 minutes for each one. And then on the next day, I'd have the next, a different set of classes. 100 minutes is a long time. It's a very long time. So, yeah, being able to have them get up and talk to each other and do these activities. Oh, can you imagine having to sit all that? Well, I just, I had to do it when I was a kid, but I don't know how I did it because, you know. Yeah. I don't know how anybody did it. And I don't know how anybody actually learned anything that way either. Cause it's just not how human beings are made to learn things. I know. Right. Exactly. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, I know that like public schools were essentially designed to teach people how to work in factories, but still. 
It's just, come on. I knew I wasn't going to work in a factory. I I knew that from a pretty young age. Yeah, for Um, anyone who's listening and didn't know that, the, the basic public school model that most of us grew up with is a relic from the Industrial Revolution. And mm-hmm. that was that was the idea. Get people who knew how to sit still and, you know, do what they were told to do. And yeah, fortunately, or, things are changing. Yeah, and do paperwork. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hated doing paperwork. <sighs> all those bells and all the, oh, yeah, there was a reason yes. for all of that. Oh, yeah. We need to change the system. We do. We need to change a lot of it. Mm-hmm. But it is changing, and I think that's that's good. So, And now I'm retired, so I'm not teaching. Well, I was teaching college for 14 years, so, but I'm not teaching college anymore even, so yay. <laughs> well, in college, at it. least you have more freedom. Yes. Don't have all that paperwork reporting that you have to do and... Uh, I'm not a paperwork person. <laughs> I think most creative people are not paperwork people. There's a reason why, you know, we did not become administrative assistants and, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. And keeping a, a spreadsheet, spreadsheets. Ah. Yeah, they I can be useful, but if you'd rather be putting on a play you're probably not going to want to spend a whole lot of time in the spreadsheet unless it's like, you know, how you're tracking your cast or your costumes or something. Mm -hmm. But right. Yeah. That's a little bit different. Yes. I, I, okay. I was a stage manager several times and that's a little bit like an administrative assistant, (laughs) except, you know, you get to go and go watch the costume fittings and, you know, stuff like that. The set being built, <laughs> that's a little bit different. So, yeah. So how did you decide that you wanted to create an online course? Okay. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> this is a little bit of a long story. I stopped teaching full-time at, in high school in t- t- 2008. I was going to write a book which turned out to be really horrible. But then um, in 2013, I said, well, I need to practice writing because, you know, I'm not an English major. At a, I didn't have creative writing classes or anything like that. So I started writing a blog. And then I, I had started a novel when I was substitute teaching when my father was still alive. And um, it, I wanted it to be about a father and a daughter. So I had started this novel. I had about six or eight chapters or something. So I revived that and decided to write a novel. Well, of course, you know how you may know how this is. It morphed into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I did publish it in 2017. And then um, when I was when we were locked down in 2020. I learned how to use Zoom because, you know, we had to having the second half of the semester acting had to be on Zoom. And uh, actually the next semester had to be on Zoom too. And, uh, and so I had been thinking about a podcast for quite some time. So I started my podcast while we were in lockdown. And then I, somehow I got hooked up with um, Mind Valley and um, joined them and started taking all these classes. And one of them was Course Pro, how to create an online class. And since my career was winding down and my professional acting friend was getting his master's and he was going to take over all my classes, I decided, you know what, I think I'll just develop this class about how to analyze stories and use them to help yourself understand human other human beings better, which is what I, one of the things I learned from discussing all those movies and television with my mom and dad. So, um, yeah, that's it. I think February 1st or 2nd was the when I launched it. And 
I don't have a whole lot of students yet, but it's fun. I did have some like test students Mm -hmm. and there's some of them are still working on the course because a couple of them are, you know, like one of them's an author and she's working on her third book and it's about to be published. And (laughs) another one's a potter and he travels all over the country with his pottery, you know, so they're busy. They're very busy people. Um, But yeah, it's just, it's fun. It was fun to do the videotaping. I also did all the editing myself. I've added a few videos to it. I've recorded some more to add to it, but we have really iffy internet right now. We're in the process of changing companies. And so I can't really upload the, Mm -hmm. it takes a long time. So when we get the new internet, I'll probably try to upload those. And those, those are just extra videos like, oh, here are some movies that you might want to go check out that I think are hidden gems. I have a couple of videos already that I did upload about here are 10 classic movies that are still relevant today. You might want to go check them out. Um, so I'll have those kind of videos. The part that I'm not very good at, and I can't wait until my husband is retired and helps me with this, is doing the the social media marketing mm. part of it. Because I have so many balls in the air, it's hard to to post something every day, you know. So, and I do want to be retired a little bit as well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be working eight hours a day. So, uh, yeah, I always, I always try to do two or three really important things during the day and then I go read my book or whatever um, for a little while in the afternoon or take a nap or watch a movie. Yeah, because I try to keep up on new, new books and movies that are, int- well, not so much new books, but new to me books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm on a fantasy kick right now. Well, actually, the I'm on the last book of a series of Jane Austen and Dragons. So it's, uh, because I, when I heard about Jane, you know, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I went, what? And we saw the movie and it's okay, but I am not a zombie fan. Mm-hmm. So when I saw this about dragons, I'm like, oh, I like dragons. Okay, I'm going to read that. Well, the first one, I couldn't put it down. And there are 11 books in the series so far. Well, that's a lot of dragons. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's even more than that. Because there are some dragons that are like the size of a hummingbird. And other dragons are really huge. And there are all these in between, you know, all different kinds of dragons. So, um it's Pride and Prejudice and Dragons at the first, or Pemberland Dragons. Um, and then um, the other book that she does is um, Persuasion. It's Maria Grace Persuasion. So it's the, the Darcy's and the Wentworths are involved with dragons and <laughs> they coincide. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really fun. And she has written you know, sequels to other Jane Austen that just, they're just no dragons. They're Mm -hmm. just, they're just sequels to the other Jane Austen books, which I have not read those yet, but I just discovered her somehow. And I went, well, I can't put this book down. So, you know, that's the kind of book I'd been kind of author I'd been looking for, for a while. And right before that, I picked up um, another series by, it was by Casey May. And I had read one of her series years ago. And this one is about a woman who can, she does mind, it's called mind speaking or something. She can go to somebody else's mind and see what they're doing and check on them because there's a war. And a lot of the people in her village want her to go check on their loved ones. But she learns how to use a flute and she starts a relationship with a dolphin who that's the dolphin's language is this music. 
So that was really interesting too. So those two people I'm hoping to get on my podcast at some point. Wow. Maria Grace. Yeah. So how do you take stories like those and take them apart? Do you, I mean, do, do you, without like giving away everything that's in your course, obviously, but, but how right. would you, how would you look at those stories and find, find the, the gold in them? It always has to do with characters mm-hmm. and what the characters are doing. So I always approach it from an actor's point of view, because I used to be an actor. Um, but a director has to do the same thing, only they have to look at all the characters. What are, you know, what are the characters' motivations? Why are they doing what they're doing? How are they interacting or not with the other characters? Because sometimes, of course, conflict is a huge part of storytelling. And, you know, so I always, I have them look at that, you know, what, you know, why is this it's something actors have to do? Why is my character doing this? And some you always have little nuggets, especially in a play or a movie, uh, that it's in the dialogue. Little bits of information in the dialogue. They don't give you everything, but they give you enough so that you can go, oh, well, maybe this happened in their past. And that's why they're acting the way. Or this might have happened. You know, it depends on the director and the actor because you can watch how many versions of Hamlet and it's a different, you know, different play every time. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so that's kind of what I do. I, you know, I talk about plot and character. Really, you kind of have to separate those, but you can't really separate them because if you don't have any characters what's the use of a plot and vice versa? <laughs> it's kind of hard to have a plot without characters. <laughs> right. Uh, and then I also talk about the other elements like the language. Joss Whedon was a genius in Firefly. He made up this whole Asian English language. And then he also had all these uh idioms and figures of speech that the and slang that the characters and and it was like well okay we are not in regular you know mm-hmm. our regular future uh we're someplace else and um you know language indicates class status and you know things like that and then uh, another thing that a lot of people probably don't really think about is colors in the setting, colors in the costumes, um, and how that sets a mood just like the music does. You know? Or it gives you indications about the characters, the kinds of clothes they wear, the colors that they wear. So that gives you an indication of who they are and what mood maybe they're in or um so those are all subliminal things kind Mm -hmm. of you know those those elements are subliminal things but because we don't really think about that you know we might see somebody and go wow what a great outfit but we don't think about the person that's wearing gray all the time right why are they wearing gray all the time you know Uh, or black why are they wearing black all the time? Um, yeah, so so I talk about those elements. Then I talk about things that I learned from analyzing stories. And, it, you know, I learned better communication skills. I learned critical thinking skills. I learned um, about hum- why humans do what they do. I learned deeper compassion, empathy, and emotional intelligence. And there are a bunch of other things that I probably could have, you know, talked about because I've, I had students that were in acting that were special ed kids, but they would come and take the acting class. Cause I was the teacher. Cause I had done a couple of long-term sub assignments mm-hmm. in which like, Okay, I have to write an IEP. I don't know how to write an IEP. Uh, but anyway, um, they would come and take the class, and I saw them blossom. 
Mm-hmm. You know, their confidence, it, all my students, well, not all of them, they ha- it depended on if they really wanted, but they could gain, they gained confidence. And one of my college students even said this not too long before I retired, you know, taking your class, well, he was talking to somebody else, but I was there um, and he, he was making it so that I knew mm-hmm. uh, of taking her class you know, when I had to go do an, uh, an, a, a, pro, uh, a presentation in another class, it was like, oh, okay, I can do this because I did the acting class. Yeah. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry. It was like, oh, oh, good. So I would, I, I was always trying to teach my acting students. You can use these skills out in the real world, Mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And that's something that, that I think people don't understand how transferable acting skills are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had this article that I put on Moodle for my acting students that was written by a theater person and it was, how my theater degree trumped a business degree. <laughs> mm, I can't believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, they were learning how to deal with human beings. Mm-hmm. That's something we all need. Doesn't matter yeah. what, doesn't matter what work we do. Yeah. And, and I think anyone who has ever had to work for a manager Mm-hmm. has stories of how people who are managers tend to forget that the people who work for them are still people mm-hmm. and tend to forget, you know, that like the the core lesson that I think I learned as a kid about how to deal with other people was, you know, put yourself in their shoes. But somehow mm-hmm. that seems to get lost mm-hmm. as soon as people get promoted. And I don't think it's malicious. I think they just forget. And and so, you know, their, their priorities change and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, I'm I'm still a person over here and I still need to, you know, pay my bills, feed my kids, you know, find time for me, all of that. Mm-hmm. On top of what I'm doing for you, I have all these other concerns and mm-hmm. issues and things going on in my life. And it's not all just about your TPS reports and, and whatever. Right. And, and all of those things just kind of seem to be lost and forgotten. And I think it's because people never quite got enough people skills, especially if they went to business school. That's not what mm-hmm. they were there to learn. They were there to learn about mm-hmm. profits and losses and stuff like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Using a different part of their brain. Mm-hmm. I, I saw Alan Alda on something, some interview, and he was teaching a class, an acting class to medical students so that they could learn to talk to their patients. And actually one of my students from Douglas, the border town, uh, was our dentist for a while. And he told me, I took an acting class for non-actors, for people who are in other professions so that we could learn to, you know, talk to our patients or talk to our whoever we were going to be working with. Um, And he said it was the best thing I ever did Mm -hmm. because he didn't take drama when he was my student in high school. He was just in my English class. But yeah, so yeah. It's always sad to me when they cut music or mm-hmm. the band or usually they don't cut the band because the band goes along with the sports. Right. <laughs> but when they cut the choir or the theater, it's like our art classes. Oh, it's so sad. Yeah. They think that they're unnecessary, that they're, you know, extras or something like that. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, there's lots of life skills in those classes. Mm-hmm. we don't tend mm-hmm. to see them that way right yeah. well it's, yeah soft skills are not not valuable skills except that they so are uh, well i'm the just most yeah. valuable skills i know i'm not disagreeing with you i know you're not <laughs> but but yeah i mean it's it's amazing how something so important can end up being so overlooked 
mm-hmm. and so dismissed. And and it seems like a real what's the word I'm looking for? Cultural blind spot. It is, yeah. Yeah. Well, the soft skills, you know, you can't you can't uh quantify them on a spreadsheet, really. Right. Right. So you can't take them and say, you know, well, you know, that skill you learned in that acting class 20 years ago made us $6,000 today. Right. You know, except if you're a waitress and you are making <laughs> the, you know, the you're understanding your customers and you're making them happy. Right. It's making the restaurant money, you know, right. or if you're a car salesman or, you know, whatever it is. And you're able to be emotionally intelligent and and deal with your customers in a great way, then you're making money, you know, you're helping the company make money, but oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like short-sighted to me. It's very short. It's very short-sighted. I agree. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I could go on forever. About that. <laughs> I suspect we both could. <laughs> so I'm curious, considering how much teaching you've done at so many different levels, when you set up a course on a platform like Udemy, where it's all video, mm-hmm. do you miss interacting with students? I mean, how mm. do you, do you get feedback? Do you, do you get a chance to interact with folks who are taking the course at all? Yeah, they, they can interact with me. I, what I did not realize when I set it up with Udemy is I was used to using Moodle or something like Moodle where the, I can set up a forum and the students can interact with each other, not just me. Well, you can't do that on Udemy right now. So I had to set up something with Discord and then Discord messed up I can't log on to Discord right now because they messed up my email or something. Um, even though I got emails when it first start when I first started my, so I was sending them over to there because I had a you know a place where they could talk to each other. Well, yeah, I realized that it, they had messed up my email when I said you know I haven't had any uh, emails from Discord telling me that there are messages. And that's when I found out. So, um, but yeah, uh, they can interact with me, but it's, it's not the same. Mm -hmm. It's not the same. And I could, you know, go to the, at the college where I used to teach, they have a small business or not, they do have a small business development center. That's not what I meant. They have a center for lifelong learning where I could teach this this exact same class, but I wouldn't make as much money probably eventually when I have more students. Um, but it is, yeah, I do miss that. And that's one of the things I love about doing the podcast is I get to actually talk to people and listen <laughs> to what they have to say, have a conversation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know that feeling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. I'm sure you do. It's a ton of fun get to meet such cool people. I know. Yes. I even met someone from Iran, a filmmaker from Iran. And I think, oh yeah, he was one of the early ones from when I joined Podmatch. And um, I think we must've talked for two and a half hours or something. It was really hard to, to cut that down to close to an hour. Because it was, he was just fascinating about, we talked about the culture and, you know, how you think of a country like that, or at least I did. And it's like a box of everybody's the same, you know, and no, 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 it's not like that at all. It's like the United States. We have, you know, we have so many different dialects and so many different religions and so many, and that was the way, that's the way it is in Iran too. Um, although much more oppressive government. Mm. And so, yeah, but the fact that he was getting ready to get his master's in filmmaking, it was like, oh, well, that's really cool. You know? Yeah. So I would like to talk to him again. I should contact him and see how he's doing, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
And I've talked to people from all over Australia and the UK and people who've moved from the UK to the Netherlands or Spain or, you know, uh, so that's just the coolest and people from all over the United States as well. So that's really fun. It's fun. Absolutely. I love it. So you had mentioned like the, your lists of classic movies that are still relevant today and, and classic books and things like that. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you could recommend like three classic movies and three classic novels, what would they be? Oh, well, that's easy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> except that there are so many. I know. Um, yeah. My three that I did recommend were now Voyager with Betty Davis. She is a woman who's having a nervous, what they call a nervous breakdown. And she, she has a very controlling mother. So there are skills that you learn from her as she's going through her awakening journey and learning how to love herself and learning how to make friends because she didn't really, her mother didn't encourage her to do that because most of the people that she was interested in weren't of their class, you know, forbid. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, uh, but she also learns how to respect her mother and maintain her independence, but, you know, walk this fine line with her mother and not give in to the, her controlling attempts to control her. Uh, but, um, yeah, but still maintain a relationship with her. And man, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. If somebody tries to control us, we just we just leave their space and we don't, you know. And, and sometimes you do have to do that. Sometimes you do have to leave their space. It's a 1942 movie. So basically, you know, you always maintain your family relationships and, you know. But she also falls in love with someone who's married. She knows he's married from the beginning. She doesn't mean to fall in love with him and he doesn't mean to fall in love with her, but they have this mutual uh, life experiences. His wife is very controlling and he has a daughter who's very much like Charlotte, like Betty Davis's character. And, um, And it's just the fact that he loves her that helps her blossom. And then they get to help his youngest daughter. So she learns if I help other people that helps me get out of my depression and it helps me feel better about myself. And, uh, if I'm loved by someone that helps me. Um, so she just becomes this really vibrant woman and her mom dies eventually and leaves her all this money. And so she gets to use her money for great things. You know, the next one is, I'm a real fan of Gregory Peck. Mm -hmm. And this is one that's not probably not very well known, but it's called gentleman's agreement. And he is just newly hired at this magazine. It's shortly after the war, maybe it's early 1950s. And, um, he is hired at this magazine. And then the very first assignment is, anti-Semitic. He's supposed to write about anti-Semitism. This is after the war. And it's like, well, people have, oh, he doesn't know what to do because people have already written about this. And, but he gets the idea to pose as a Jew so that he can feel what the Jewish people are going through. And he happens to have a Jewish friend who has an opportunity for this really great job. Um, but he can't find a place to live because in Connecticut, I think the job is in Connecticut. There are all these restricted neighborhoods where they're not going to let Jews or blacks or, you know, anybody of color live in their neighborhood. And Gregory Peck happens to have a girlfriend, a woman friend. It was her idea for the article who owns a house in one of those restricted communities. And she thinks she's totally liberal, but as it goes along, it shows her blind spots. 
Eventually, she does rent her house to his Jewish friend. But it takes her a while to realize, oh, I thought I was so liberal and I, you know, I totally didn't understand mm-hmm. the, you know, what was going on. So the next one is Best Years of Our Lives. And it, it was made right after the war. And it's three men coming home from the war. One was um, an infantryman. He's older, a little bit older, and has almost adult children, or one of them is an adult. And then um, he's also a banker. Then there's a, a man who was a bombardier, and another one was a sailor. And it's their PTSD, how they deal with their PTSD. And it's, it was one of the first movies that ever showed how, how to deal with PTSD. So it was groundbreaking, made a lot of, uh, won a lot of Oscars. That's really fantastic. Uh, the three books, one of them is... Middlemarch, which if you've never read anything from the 19th century, it's going to be hard for you to read because it's like 800 and something pages. But it's by George Eliot. Um, I don't know what her real name was, but that was her pen name, George Eliot. And the first third of the book is setting up the town and the relationships between the people. But Dorothea, who is the main character, goes on this journey of she she wants to be of use, but she's a woman. What can she do? So she marries this man who is writing this series of books. Her view is she's going to get to help him do the research and, you know, well, no, of course not. When he's older and when she marries him, he doesn't want her help at all. And so... Uh, eventually, though, he dies and she is able to use the money to help like charities and, you know, set up things for people so they can get jobs and stuff like that. So, and one of the lines in it is, uh, people might not ever remember her name, but what she did will stick around forever, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, Cloud Atlas is the next one, and Cloud Atlas is basically the same theme, theme as Middlemarch. Uh, what we do has resonance way beyond what we our lives, our physical lives, um, and a lot of times people don't realize that. Um, and it, ha- but it's difficult because it has six timelines. So the if you watch the movie, it's like, what, what? Because the way they structured it is completely different than the book. The book has one timeline that stops next timeline until you get to the middle timeline. And then it goes backwards oh. so that it's bookended with the 1849 or 59 um, timeline. And then 19... 30-something, 1970-something, so on and so forth. Yeah, so, and it goes way into the future, the timeline, some of the timelines do. But it's basically the same thing, that one person can make a huge difference and does make a huge difference. Um, What's the third one then? The third one I think that I would say is it's one called the expected one it's kind of a da vinci code kind of same themes and so on and so forth but it's actually three books but the expected one is the first one and it's by kathleen mcgowan i think her name is and it takes place over a longer period of time the da vinci code is like 48 hours or something Mm -hmm. Um, but this one takes place over a much longer period of time. And uh, Jesus and Mary's descendants are, instead of just one descendant, uh, it's, you know, thousands, millions of descendants. 
and what they went through, what Mary went through when she left Jerusalem. And it's really an interesting two timeline kind of thing. Because we get to see the relationship between Mary and Jesus. We all see these people in the, those are my three. Interesting. And I, you know, it's, it, I, I saw a conversation online a couple months ago about Middlemarch. So it's fascinating that you mentioned that because it was basically saying, you know, everybody's afraid of Middlemarch, but it's really worth it if you stick with it and, you know, oh, yeah. in ways you wouldn't expect. And so mm-hmm. I, I'd never, you know, I hear people talk that way about things like, oh, you know, you should sit down and read Proust someday. Yeah, it's really long, but it's great, you know, but I hadn't mm-hmm. heard anyone go on about middle march that way so i'm i'm intrigued since you've brought it up too well and i'm one of those people that watches the movie first and then reads the book so <laughs> i did that with now voyager i did that with um cloud atlas um and i did that with middle march too was i watched the movie and then i went and read the book and so i was ready to stick with it because mm-hmm. i knew i kind of knew how it was going to end but, well, and that's yeah. interesting, too, because so many people feel like that's cheating, you know, because that's what we were taught in school. And yet, I, I don't necessarily know that that's cheating, right? I mean, first of all, right. who's going to know? It's not homework. It's not like you're getting graded. And right. so, you know, yeah, do do your own thing. You want to watch well, the movie first, go for it. And I'm a visual person. So when I read the book, I have, then I have. The mm-hmm. per- what the person looks like, what they wore, uh, you know, I have that all in my head. Uh, the lands, what the landscape looks like, because sometimes when it's being described in the books, I'm like, huh? <laughs> you know? yeah. I, I can't see. I can't see it in my head. Really, I can't see it when the. And I'm not faulting the authors. I think they probably have done a really great job. It's way the way my brain works. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, we're all different. Mm-hmm. You know, some of us picture that stuff really well and some of us don't, mm-hmm. you know, just like mm-hmm. people learn differently. We all, you know, experience things differently. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I sat down and tried to figure out how many book movie connections I had. And I stopped at 75. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, it's way longer than <laughs> Yeah. And I want to take the time to write. Oh. Anyway, well, there you go, yeah. folks. You have permission from a teacher to watch the movie first and then read the book mm-hmm. and do it whatever way works for you. And I'm totally yeah. seconding that. I think it's great. Yeah. Well, and I love it because the book then fills in details that they can't right. put into the movie because they only have two hours or two and a half hours mm-hmm. to tell the story, you know? Yeah. So even if it's, even if it's like a discovery of witches and they have each book is a, you know, a season, they, they can't put everything in there. And they always change things. So you can see what's different. Right. What's the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is really cool. And I, I like the way that, that you've got, you know, like those three movies are not movies that I've seen, even though I like classic movies. So I will put those on my list to check them out. I love that you're bringing these things from the past into the present in such mm-hmm. a cool way. And, and just the idea that, you know, stories aren't just for entertainment. They're here to teach you things about yourself and other people mm-hmm. and how to get along in the world. I think that's really awesome. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. I, <laughs> as you can tell, <laughs> Everything I do is about stories. (laughs) You know, I think in many ways, stories are what makes us human. Right. Even if they're the stories that we tell ourselves in our heads that are not true. (laughs) Right. Right. Because we have to have stories to make sense of our world. Mm -hmm. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We do. Eventually we figure out, oh, that wasn't true. (laughs) Right. But it made sense at the time. <laughs> That's right. Right. Exactly. And hopefully yeah. if it wasn't true, it didn't land me in too much trouble. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for coming and talking with me today. Sure. It's been fun. Thank you, Nancy. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much to my guest, Lucinda Sage Midgordon, and to you for listening. Please leave a review for this episode. There's a link in your podcast app. And in it, tell us about a time when a story changed how you understood your world. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thanks so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com and there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.